0: Several years ago, I was in Spokane, Washington, and I was uh, with a friend of mine who had gotten into some legal trouble, and I had gone out to be with him during the week-long trial to kind of encourage him to help his uh, family, and I actually was a character witness uh, that had to stand, uh, uh, you know, in the little uh, kind of, what do they call that? I don't know. My brain just went blank, but... Yeah, your little chair that you sit. And uh, I don't know what that is. It could have been a lot better what that intro was, just so you know. Um, But anyway, I'm, I'm in Spokane, Washington. I'm at this trial. And in the midst of everything, I just wanted to get home. You were in trial every single day, long trials. The family's overwhelmed. This guy had... Uh, some felonies against him, and and so it was just, it was just tough, and so when I finally got on the plane, all I was thinking was, get home, get home, and the plane was supposed to go from Spokane to Phoenix, Arizona, and then from Phoenix, Arizona to Indianapolis, and then I was going to get in my little car and come back to good old Muncie, Indiana, and I was going to be able to be reunited with my lovely wife, and to sleep in my own bed uh, rather than sleeping uh, on a couch that entire week. So I get on the plane. We start heading out, and pretty soon it comes on the uh, intercom. Due to weather issues, we will be landing in Las Vegas. And at that point, I'm thinking, that's not bad. I'll go to Vegas. You know what happens in Vegas? Stays in Vegas, so Who knows? And so we get to Vegas. Well, when we get to Vegas, they say, now we have a layover of 30 minutes. Well, you know, every time they tell you that you have a layover, it's not going to be 30 minutes. And so 30 minutes went to an hour. An hour went to two hours. Two hours went to three hours. Three hours went to four hours. It's 1130 at night. And they said, we have a voucher for you to spend the night, but you have to be back at the airport at 6 a.m. in the morning so you can fly out. It's always wonderful to be in Vegas, you know, at 12 o'clock and you have to leave at 6. Not very fun. And I'm so frustrated at this point. And all I was telling myself was, I wish I would have had a nonstop flight. Why did I have this connecting flight? And I'm exhausted and I'm homesick and I'm just done. And this layover is starting to feel... Like a destination. Well, it's one thing for you and I to have some inconvenience on an airplane where we have to have a layover. But sometimes life has things that aren't just layovers, but the layover actually starts to feel like a destination. And I found this most of all in this area of discouragement. In 1998, Jennifer and I moved here to Muncie. To be honest, neither one of us wanted to move to Muncie. It was a God thing, not our thing. But when we got here, uh, I wasn't excited because I had just left from a church where I would pastored for five years, and the church had doubled in size, and these two small little churches were actually going to come together to merge to build a building. And I was so excited that I was going to be the pastor to be able to do that. But over a period of time, I felt the prompting from God's spirit, not audibly, but just in my spirit, telling me that I was not going to be the person to do this. And God was calling me to follow Jennifer's calling to be a physician and for me to go back to school to get my master's degree. So I reluctantly kind of followed this call. I wasn't excited about it, but we moved to Muncie and Jennifer immediately got plugged into a residency program and got to meet tons of people and her life started going great. I, on the other hand, was all alone, didn't know anyone in this town whatsoever. And I spent all my days working on my yard. I mowed my yard. And then two weeks later, I mowed it again. And then I got depressed, and the yard looked horrible. And then finally I was like, well, I'm going to have the best yard in the world. And so then I started mowing every other day. I started weeding out all the weeds, all the flower beds. Everything was looking good. It looked like this, Better Homes and Gardens, front page, okay? It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Things were great. But I felt all alone and discouraged. Well, luckily, summer didn't last very long, and eventually I started uh, school at Anderson University. And I thought, well, now my discouragement will go away, and things will be better, because now I'll be around other people, other Christ followers, other people that are going to be pastors. But it didn't. And again, I felt like a stranger in a strange place. I had been out of school for six years. I felt very intimidated. No one was all love and joy. Everybody seemed stressed out. And my discouragement just continued to grow and to grow and to grow. And during this time, it became like a desert of discouragement. I eventually started having anxiety attacks. Anxiety attacks that would consume me for the first 40 days of seminary. I used to call it the cemetery, actually, not the seminary. Uh, It felt like a cemetery. And I would wake up in the morning and I'd be so anxious and I would go to uh, the porcelain God, the toilet, and I would try to be sick and I would want to start to, to get all my anxiety out, but there was nothing except dry heaves again and again and again. And I was just overwhelmed to the max, just overwhelmed. Eventually, my wife realized that I was so overwhelmed that I needed to actually get some help. And so I started going to counseling. I got some uh, anti-anxiety medicine. And our marriage was very rocky and things were difficult. And I was in a spiritual trial, a spiritual desert, a desert of discouragement. And I thought it was all God's fault. Now, I'm not going to tell you all the rest of the story of how God kind of worked through that, but simply to say, I didn't quit being a pastor. Now, some of you might be like, well, you might think about it, though, you know, uh, you you just might. Uh, But I didn't. And I graduated from seminary and God graciously restored my heart and he restored my soul. And I learned a very valuable lesson. And the Lesson was this that discouragement is not a destination but simply a layover. Discouragement is not a destination but it's simply a layover. Now, I would love to say that that was the last season of discouragement. I ever had in 1998. But the reality is discouragement has come back and forth in my life at different moments. And when those seasons come and I feel discouraged, the thing that I often ask to God is, why me? Why me, God? Why am I going through this season of discouragement? But I'm sure discouragement is simply something I wrestle with, right? No one else does. Just me. Is that right? Have you ever gone through a season of discouragement before? Maybe you're in one right now. Have you ever been discouraged about a relationship? Have you ever been discouraged about your job? Have you ever been discouraged about school? Have you been discouraged about your kids, about your marriage, about your finances, about your health? Every single person in this gym this morning has something in common. And the thing is, we've all gone through seasons of discouragement. Maybe it was a marriage that didn't quite work out and you went through the pain and the discouragement of a divorce. Maybe it was getting fired from a job or getting passed over on a promotion. Maybe it was being kicked out of an apartment or having your house foreclosed on. Or having to downsize or to file bankruptcy. Or a friend who lied about you or put you down or ignored you altogether and walked away from your life. And so, discouragement hits often. And when it hits, it doesn't feel like a layover. But it feels like you're in a destination. Like we will never get out of the pit of discouragement. But it doesn't have to be that way. Again, I want to remind you of our big idea this morning. And let's all kind of read this out loud together in one voice. Let's read it out loud. Discouragement is not a destination, but simply a layover. Now, the good news is that you and I are not the first ones to ever go through a season of discouragement. People throughout Scripture have gone through many seasons of that. And this morning, I want us to look at the story of a man who had gone through 38 years of discouragement until Jesus came into his life. And remember, folks, discouragement, though, it's not a destination. Regardless of how long it lasts, it's simply a layover. So in John chapter 5, John's in the second half of the Bible. John was one of Jesus' closest friends. And John heard this story of what Jesus did, and he writes it, and he begins by saying this. Afterward, and if you ever see that word, you're like, well, what was before word? You know what I mean? That's not a word, just in case you were wondering. But after what? That's what you're wanting to know. What, what just happened? Well, something very interesting. There was a man whose son was very, very sick, close to death, but this man was a Roman soldier. He was a political figure. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals the boy by not even going to see the boy. He just says, your son will be healed, and he was. And so after Jesus brings this type of healing, the Scripture goes on to say, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. And a holy day was just like a big festival. There would be tons of joy and celebration going on. And Jesus loved parties. Jesus was always looking forward to be invited to a party. And he's on his way to this Jewish festival to celebrate it. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether the disciples were with him or not. We don't know. So let's just assume that he goes by himself. And then in verse 2, it says this. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Now, the question, probably in your mind, that you've been wanting to know for your entire life, what is a sheep gate? (laughs) So I'm going to tell you, okay? A sheep gate was simply a corral or a pen of flawless, fat sheep that were kept there. And they were kept until these festivals where they would sacrifice these uh, non-blemished sheep for the sins of everyone else. Jesus later on became the ultimate sheep or the ultimate lamb. But before that, every time sin would come into someone's life, they would have to give up an animal sacrifice of some kind. Now the name of this pool was called Bethesda. And that word Bethesda means a house of mercy. In other words, many of our hospitals, what do we call them? We call them Mercy Hospital, like my wife. She works at St. Vincent Mercy Hospital. And this Bethesda was a place where mercy and healing took place. It was a pool, like a swimming pool. I'm not talking like a, a small little kiddie pool. I'm talking about a big public pool where everyone came, and the animals were cleansed there, and the waters, everyone believed, had healing power. They believed that regularly what would happen is every time that the water would be stirred, that that was an angel stirring the water, and whoever got into the pool first was healed. Now, if there's this reputation of mercy and healing around this pool, what do you think is around the pool? What kind of people? Sick people. Sick, sick people. And so in verse 3, it says this, Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches around this pool. So they had superstitions just like we have today. Their superstition was that this angel came down, stirred up the water. When the bubbles came up and people would see it, the first person into the pool would be healed. But only one person. Now, the reality is, folks, that this kind of healing is not found anywhere in Scripture. Christians, people who follow Christ, have an understanding of healing this way. That healing is not about a competition about who is holy or who is not holy or, or whatever that is. Or the first person that gets to some place, that that person will be ...healed and everyone else will be ignored. But the understanding of Christian healing is this. God heals. God chooses who he wants to heal whenever that is. But it's about God, not about any superstition. However, near this pool, there were these pagan cults. They were not Christ followers. And these pagan shrines to God, they believed that they had psychic powers... And so the sick in Jerusalem would come to this pool for the chance that they might be healed. Just like today, there are many people that will call psychic hotlines to to try to get healing, or they'll go to a fanatical religious person, or you'll see them on TV sometime, and they'll say, I'm going to send you this water that is holy water. It will heal you. If you ever do that, just come up here. I'll give you water. It'll be free. won't cost you a thing. But God's the one who has the power to heal, not the water, not the cloth, nothing else. Now, interestingly enough, then, the text goes on to say this. One of the men lying there had been sick for how long had he been sick? 38 years. years. Here is a man who is lame. In some way, we're not sure, but he's been lame for 38 years. 38 years, he has been unable to walk. 38 years, he's been dependent upon other people to get him around. For 38 years, the main thing that he has seen, if you're a person and you're lame and you're on the ground and you can't walk, what is the one thing you see every single day? Feet. All day long, all you see is feet. Feet. Big feet, small feet, dirty feet, clean feet, stinky feet. Your world is feet. And for 38 years, every foot that he saw created more discouragement because every feet was walking and he was not. And he was filled with discouragement. Now, let's take a quick time out from our story. And... One of the questions when discouragement comes is, what are some of the factors of discouragement? And so I want to give some of those to you today. The first kind of factor that leads to discouragement, I think, is something called fatigue. Fatigue. The man in this story has been discouraged so long and he's fatigued from his physical illness. He's fatigued from the fact that he's been walked over and he's just fatigued because he's worn out. He never gets to the pool first. And you know what i found in my own life? That I am most vulnerable to discouragement when I'm tired. Have you ever noticed that? You're more vulnerable to discouragement when you're tired and when you're worn out. There's a recent study that uh, I looked at on sleep and people getting enough sleep. And this will knock your socks off. Do you know that the motor skills... For sleep-deprived people are worse than people who are legally drunk. Now, think about that for a second. If you're sleep-deprived, you're at a worse place than you are if you're legally drunk. Now, I don't want you to go out and test this theory, okay? You don't need to like, hey, Bunch told me to go do it. I don't need you to do that, okay? But think about that. Chronically sleep-deprived people, I read it this week, are at greater risk for ulcers, premature aging, obesity, breast cancer. So no wonder why Scripture was so concerned about sleep and people getting rest and not living a life filled with fatigue. Now, some of you right now are thinking to yourself, I could sleep right now. Well, I've gone through this teaching once already. It's really not that great. So, you know, if you're going to sleep, go ahead. Get a little therapy while you're at it. But personally, since I'm a type A person, I have to watch myself not getting fatigued because I'm always on the go. I always want to be doing something. I want to accomplish something. And I have to check myself regularly to see where I'm at on the fatigue meter. So I've learned the importance of rest and reconciliation. Because if I don't do that, fatigue will then eventually lead to discouragement. For most of uh, my pastorate at the church I pastored before and many of the years here at the JAR, I never took a day off. I never had a Sabbath where I pulled away and I rested. And then one particular Sunday I'm teaching on Sabbath and I'm thinking, well, you're not even practicing what you're telling people to do. And I made a change and this is what I do from now on. Whatever the last thing is that I have in this place, I leave, and for the next 24 hours, I pull away from work. And I chill. And I take it easy. And I try to be with my family. And tomorrow morning, I might take a nap. In the morning, I might take a nap. And I don't feel bad about it. In fact, for some of you, you know the most spiritual thing you could do today? Is that when you get home, you take a nap. It could be the most spiritual thing that you could do, is to rest. Now, don't nap now. I'm talking about later, okay? Later. Folks, the reason why some of you are discouraged, though, is because you're fatigued. And you get so fatigued that the discouragement becomes greater. So let me encourage you. If God took a rest on one day out of the seven that he created, why don't you think you can? Do you think you're any more productive? Every study would tell you no. So if God took one day off, you should, to rest your body, to rest your soul. I mean, breaks, folks, actually help us to be more productive in life. Because if you live life in a way that you're just constantly on the go, fatigue will hit and eventually discouragement will rise. Now, a second factor that leads to discouragement is frustration. I'd like us to look at verses 6 and 7 here, real quick. It says this When Jesus saw him, that is the man who was lame for 38 years, and he knew he'd been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool. When the bubbles come up, someone else always gets there ahead of me. For 38 years, someone was always in front of this guy for his healing. For 38 years, he tried really hard to be the first one to get into the pool, but he couldn't. He never gets there, and he has this... Severe lameness that prevents him from getting there. You know, I'm sure in year one, two, or three, this guy was still encouraged. Like, hey, you know, one of these days is going to be my day. But then eventually you get to like year five or year 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 30 or 35. And eventually the frustration becomes so big you start giving up. Like I'm never going to get there. And when we finally get to that point, folks, where we give up, we get burnout on life. And we pull back and we're like, that's it. I, I don't want anything anymore. Because this guy always felt like he only got to second place. Have you ever felt that way before? That you're just at second place? Maybe in your marriage maybe with your kids, maybe in your workplace, but you always feel like maybe, I just can't quite get there, I'm in second place. I just graduated from college as a U.S. history major, and I was looking forward to being a U.S. history teacher. And so I applied to tons of different schools, and I went to all of these job fairs, I had an interview in Joliet, Illinois, and uh, thought, oh, you know, this is going to be my place. Nah. I had some other places in second place, but not there. And finally, the frustration got so great that I was about ready to throw into the, the, the towel for this whole concept of pursuing being a teacher. But I get a phone call. And it's from Carmel Clay Schools to interview me for a social studies position. And I went into the interview. I was extremely prepared. I, you know, really shined in the interview. I mean, they sat there and they thought, this could be the teacher of the year. (laughs) I mean, he really could be. And so I'm just going to town. I mean, I hit a grand slam over the park. You know, it's huge. And... The principal escorts me out and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he said, we'll surely be calling you this evening. And so I'm at my parents' house because I'm living with them because I don't have a job. And I'm watching their phone for hours. I'm yelling at them. Did one of you get on the phone? I'm looking at this phone. And it never rang. And the frustration just became so great, so overwhelming. And the discouragement became even greater. And then the next night, I'm feeling alone and discouraged and the phone rings and I think to myself, oh, it's my fiance at the time, now my wife, Jennifer, and she's calling to console me and love me and all of that. But it was even better than that. The principal called and he said, hey, sorry, you know, we didn't call you uh, last night, but we want to call you tonight. And Chris, I just wanted to call and I wrote this down. Chris, I just wanted to call and let you know that you were the best candidate and we would like to hire you, but, and every time you hear that, it immediately goes to discouragement, but our department is comprised of all men and we decided to hire a woman so that there would be more balance. But we will keep you in mind for future positions. Don't you hate it when they say that? We'll keep you in mind for future positions. You know what that means? No, we're not. I wouldn't take that principle with the social studies textbook, put his head in it and slam it shut. Now, I didn't do that, by the way, just in case you wondered. But my frustration got so overwhelmed. And you know what led to discouragement? And then discouragement led to burnout. And I was burnout on trying to apply for this job that I had gone to school for four years to get. And I was done. Have you ever been to that point in life before? Where you just felt like you were burnout? You didn't have any more to give. You were done. And it seems like the harder that you work, the less that anybody else notices. The harder that you work, the less gets done. And folks, there are two ways that you can live life. You can either live out your life in the call that God wants, or you can live a life of burnout. And most of us, I think, in this place today would say, hey, I want to live a life that is living this out. I want to live out my life for God. But if you're not careful, if you fall into fatigue and you fall into frustration, you're headed towards burnout. I'm sure this layman had reached that point. And the question becomes, but why? Why did he get there? Well, the reason is he was trying to achieve a goal that was unattainable. He thought that it was all based upon his power to get to the pool first. That if he just got to the pool and the water stirred, that he would be healed. But the healing was not going to come from the water, but it would come from Jesus himself. And in my situation, I wanted so badly to be a teacher in the public. I wanted to be a school teacher to teach history to our kids that I was overshadowed by my desire to want to be recognized as a teacher that I totally lost listening to God's voice and his call on my life. Because God never was interested, honestly, in me being a school teacher. He put every roadblock there was. But what he desired was for me to be a teacher of his word, of God's word, of the Bible itself. Folks, burnout comes when we try to work so hard at something that we can't accomplish because it's not the thing that God is calling us to do to begin with. Or when we work at something so hard to try to accomplish it in our own power rather than getting the power of Christ. So fatigue, frustration, and then finally is failure. Failure can lead to discouragement. Let's look at verse 7 again. And uh, what's the first two words of verse 7? What's it say? What is it? I can't. I can't. When Jesus asks this man, Would you like to be healed? What should the man say? Yes. But he doesn't say yes. What does he say? I can't. And then he focuses on, All the reasons why he hasn't been able to get to the pool. All of his failures. Now, standing in front of him is the one who could heal all things. Not some psychic healer. Not some wacky religious uh, person. But the real deal is standing before him to be the healer of all things. But this man could only think back On his failures of not being able to get to the pool. Folks, discouragement often follows when we've gone through a personal failure. It might be a divorce. It might be a rebellious kid. It may be some financial loss that we've had. And we talk more about failure later on in the series in a couple of weeks. All I want to say to you this morning is this. All of us fail. Every single one of us have failed. You do not go through life failure free. In fact, failure is a part of life. Why? Because we live in a fallen world. But you always have to remember this. This is a very important point here. You always have to remember that failure is an event, not a person. Let me say that again. Failure is an event, not a person. So today, if you feel like a failure, if you feel like a loser, I want you to know, God doesn't create losers or failures. Because failure is an event, never a person. I mean, the reality is, failure is not the issue because we all fail. But how we respond to failure, that becomes the more important thing. Of what do we do with that? How do we respond? Do we give up or do we live a life that says I will never give up because there is one who has never given up on me? But if we're not careful, failure will lead to discouragement. A couple years after being a pastor at these two small little country churches, I got my first kind of hate letter from someone in the church. It was from the church organist who did not like me because we were singing different songs than what she liked. And basically, the letter came down to this. You are a no-good stinking pastor. That's it. And he said, uh, and she said that she was leaving the church and her family was, which was about ten people altogether. And I remember looking at that letter and crying like a little, you know, kind of elementary age girl, you know, crying. And I started thinking to myself, if this is true, if I'm this big of a failure, I need to take my Bible and just like turn it in and quit this, bas- this pastor gig because this pastor gig is just not working anymore. And let me say this, folks. If you're not careful, when you hear criticism from the people around you, if you listen to it long enough, you'll start feeling like a failure and it'll lead into uh, this period of discouragement. I have a feeling that some of you you work in tough environments. Places where sometimes you're not appreciated for anything that you do, and you're always being told you're not enough or you're not good enough. And you, if you're not careful, failure can consume you at that point. And so we've got to realize that discouragement can be led by these three factors. Fatigue, and frustration, and failure. Now, Let me leave you with some good news, because a lot of you probably right now are thinking, okay, you told me what leads to discouragement, but I don't want to stay there. I would like to actually get out of discouragement. How do I do that? How do I respond when discouragement hits? How can I live a never-give-up attitude? Well, the first way you do that is you respond by calling out to God. We simply take a moment and we call out to God. It's called prayer. If you don't know how to pray, we've got a resource at the resource table that will help you know how to do that. But it's this conversation that we have between ourselves and God. It's not that hard. You know what the number one conversation human beings have with God is? Help! That's why people are constantly crying out. Help! And God loves to hear that prayer. Have you ever noticed, though, that in your life, The first thing that you should do is often the last thing that you actually do. Have you ever noticed that? Like, you know the thing to do, but you hold back and you don't do that until the very last moment. And discouragement, when it hits, the first thing you should do is call out to God. That you pray, that you ask for help. In our story today, after 38 years of fatigue and failure and frustration, this man does not do this. He does not call out to God in prayer. And many times, you and I are the same way. We will often say something like, well, let me try to handle this myself. And then, well, if you have to, I'll turn to prayer. Folks, prayer should not be the last thing that you do. It should be the first thing that you turn to. We should always turn to calling out to God first. Because God always listens and will help us through whatever discouragement we're facing. I love what Psalm 18.6 says. It says this, In my distress, I called out to the Lord. I cried to my God for help, and he heard my voice. When I'm struggling, one of the things that I'll do is I get my journal, and I'll just start writing out what I'm discouraged about. And sometimes it's just a few lines. Sometimes it could be an entire page. But I'll write it out. And what it does is it helps me to get my feelings on paper So that I can allow God then to actually begin to move in that. And for some of you, that might be something, if you're in a season of discouragement, start writing it out, journaling what that is. And you know when I do that, and I have the guts to do that, over time, God kind of gives peace to my soul. So we call out to God. The second thing is we concentrate on the big picture. You concentrate on the big picture. Our story today The lame man's perspective got very narrow. His world became so small, and all he could think about was his own discouragement. You know, folks, when all we do is think about how wrong our life is, and we only think on this one perspective of our failure, then we don't see the whole thing. I mean, this lame man had finally given into the fact that his life was about looking at people's feet. And he lost perspective and all he saw was feet and feet and feet. And then one day, the feet of the greatest man who ever walked planet Earth was in front of him and he could not recognize who it was because his picture became so narrow. Colossians 3.2 says this, Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the right things in front of you. Look up. See things from Christ's perspective. Folks, discouragement comes when we lose sight of Christ's perspective. And we're only focused on our own viewpoint. But when we see things in a 360 world, That's Christ's perspective. And when we see the big picture, that what I'm going through right now will not last forever because discouragement is not a destination, but it's simply a layover. I can see a bigger picture and then discouragement shrinks. Last thing, if you want to overcome or respond to discouragement, you claim the encouragement of God's promises. You claim the encouragement of God's promises. You know, one thing that I was very prone to do when I first became a Christ follower was every time my life was not working out the way that I thought it should, I would stop reading the Bible. I would be like, well, I'm not going to read those words because he's not helping my life anyways. I'm not going to do that. And then when we started the jar, I read an article about something called force-feeding. And force feeding is simply this that even when I'm discouraged and I don't feel like reading the Bible, I do it anyway. I force myself to open it up, to put my foot to the floor, my feet to the floor, to put my rear end in a chair, and I just start reading it. And this is what I found that as I followed the force feeding principle. There are times when I don't even know what to say to God. I just kind of cry out to Him, God, I need something from You today. I don't even know what that is, but I'm going through such a difficult time, a discouraging time. Would You give me a word? Would You give something within this text? Now, right now, my reading plan is in Leviticus. If you know anything about the Bible, look at Leviticus, and you'll not choose to read it ever again, I guarantee But I go through the Bible every single year and I'm in Leviticus right now. And I was reading this morning and I was like, God, you know, would you give me something? And there was all of these laws about all kinds of things of what to do and not to do. And all of a sudden, just in this one verse, God says, Moses, tell the people of Israel not to act like the Egyptians where you have been and not like the Canaanites where you're going. But would you act like my people because I love you? And man, I opened that up today, and I didn't think I was going to get anything out of Leviticus. And I was like, God, I just want to be your person today. I don't have to impress anybody who's here. It doesn't matter what the crowd is or what the crowd isn't. I'm just going to be who you've called me to be. And I forced myself. I had force feeding this morning. Because I want you to know, folks, this book is not a book to beat you down. This book is a love letter from God that opens up and says, I will give you hope. I'll give you encouragement. And so the question becomes, when you're discouraged, how can you find that? Many of you know my wife is a physician, and she writes prescriptions all the time. And uh, one day I remember watching her. She was at her desk, and she was writing prescriptions for different people. She's writing all these, and I started getting jealous I started thinking to myself, what makes her so great that she gets to have her own autograph session all the time? And she's just like writing it and just writing it and writing it. I'm getting more frustrated and upset. I'm like, God, why did she get to write prescriptions? I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm a man of the cloth. I should be able to write prescriptions. Now, you don't want me to write any prescription for anything medical because you will die, okay? But all of a sudden, this image came to me. Chris, you know what you could do? You could start writing my prescriptions to people as you look at things. And so I have these prescriptions that I'll give to people every once in a while and worry or anxiety because I've battled those things or fear because I've had a lot of fear. And I have one for all of you that might be discouraged today. It's actually in your program today. And it looks like this. So If you pull that out real quick. And if you need one, just raise your hand. But here is God's prescription for discouragement. God's prescription for discouragement. Let me just read a few of these for you real quick. You can follow along. The Lord himself goes before you and you, and he will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be, what's the word? Discouraged. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be, what's the word? For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The Lord is near to you who are what? He's near to you, he says. He saves those who have lost all hope. Next one. I will not be afraid because the Lord is with me. People can't do anything to me. Next one. He gives me strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Next. So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Another word for discourage. For I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus said, it's all right. I am here. Don't be afraid. That to you is worth the price of admission for today. And our story ends in a powerful way. In verses 8 and 9 we read, Jesus told him, this man who had been discouraged for 38 years, Stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. 38 years of discouragement, of never getting to the pool water first, is removed immediately when Jesus came into his life. And the same power that was available to this man is available to everyone who is battling discouragement today. Jesus looks at everyone who is battling with any discouragement, and he says this, he says, stand up, pick up your mat, pick up any discouragement you have, place it on my shoulders, and walk, and I will walk with you. Because I can turn your discouragement into encouragement And you can live a life of a never-give-up attitude. Today, we are celebrating our baptism. There are five people that are going to get baptized. And each of them have gone through discouragement before. They have come to finally realize, though, that there is only one who can encourage them the most. Now, all five of them have powerful stories. I'd love for you to hear their story. But... Due to time, we wanted to just share with you where these people were at before they came to Christ and their discouragement, and where they are at now, now that they've given their life to Christ. So, we have a little video of one word that represents them before, and then one that's after. I'd like you to look at the side screens as we You've been are. walking the same
1: old road for miles and miles. You've been hearing the same old voice, of the same old lies. If you're trying to feel the same old holes inside, there's a better life. There's a better life. If you got pain, he's a painter. If you need freedom, save it. He's a prisoner shaking Savior. If you got chains, he's a chain-breaker.
0: Hey, please stand for closing prayer. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up here if you'd like prayer for anything. Uh, They would love to pray with you. And I was thinking about it this week and just felt a a prompting to kind of offer this to anybody. But if you've never been baptized before, but today you're like, man, I'm tired of being discouraged. I want Christ to be at the center of my life. That today might be your day. And you don't have to worry about having t-shirts or shorts. We we have that stuff for you. We have towels. We have everything. And today, if you're just kind of like, hey, you know what? Today's my day. I'll be at the Gatorade vending machine out here. And someone can give you some t-shirts or shorts. short, and today could be your day. And so uh, what I'd like to do as a way to encourage us all is to just close with a prayer. And I'll invite any of you who want to turn to the one who can encourage you, the one who can say, 38 years of discouragement, not too big for me, I'll take it. I'll bring healing to your life today. That he's present, he's here, he wants to give that to you. So I'd like to pray, and then after that, Uh, We'll be done, and you can go down to the pool, poolside, to celebrate the baptism today. But if today is your day, just meet me there at the Gatorade vending machine, and uh, God could quench your thirst today. How about that? He could. So let's pray. Loving God, thank you so much for being willing. To take our discouragement upon your shoulders. Thank you for reminding us, God, that discouragement is not a destination, but it's simply a layover. Help us, God, to learn how to call out to you when we're discouraged and to concentrate on the bigger picture that you have for our life. To claim the promises, God, that you can give to us. I know in a group this size, God, that there are folks who are discouraged today. Maybe they came in with a smile on their face and they're trying to fake it. But, God, they're, they're struggling today. Maybe it's something in their marriage or their work or with their kids or with some relationship. And I just pray right now, Jesus, would you move and would you help them? to know that you're present, that they're not alone. Help them to know right now, God, that you are with them and you will never leave them. I realize some folks here this morning, God, they feel discouraged because you haven't been on their radar. They've drifted away from you or you just have been nowhere in sight. And they don't know you. And so today, if you're ready to believe and surrender your one life, to Christ, to say, I need his forgiveness. I need his encouragement. I need his plan for my life. I I need to know that there is a home in heaven for me. Then I invite you to pray this prayer after me. And here at the jar, none of us pray alone, that we all pray together. And so I invite you to simply repeat this prayer after me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your gift of forgiveness. Jesus, forgive me. Make me brand new. I believe you died and rose again so I could live with you. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, follow you, and serve you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life you now have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's give a hand for everybody who said that prayer for the first time. If you'd like prayer for anything, come on up, and uh, otherwise we'll see you poolside. Have a great week, everybody.